Welcome to the Cult is King podcast. I'm your host, the Duke, here with my co-host, Rambling Bones. Hello again to everyone out there. Before we get started here, what is it we actually do here, Bones? Uh, well, here on the Cult is King podcast, we talk about cult movies, B-movies, uh, obscure film, uh, anything we want to, pretty much. And today, the movie in question is... House of Wax, 1953. As opposed to House of Wax, Paris Hilton edition. I don't know the date it came out. I want to say it was 2004, but don't quote me on that. Yeah, it, it doesn't matter. Well, it's actually kind of interesting because when I was looking through our comments, uh, somebody had requested that we compare this at some point later to the 2004 House of Wax. But what you might not realize is that this one itself is a remake. Uh, in fact, uh, it's a remake of Mystery at the Wax Museum, which was made in 1933. Yes, uh, and also if you didn't catch that, this was a fan-requested film, so we do listen to our fans. Yes, all Sometimes. ten of you. All ten of you. We love you. But uh, you, this was based off of uh, Mystery uh, at the Wax Museum, which was based off of a three-act play. And this movie is sort of important because it was the first color film to be filmed in 3D. By a major studio. By a, ma yeah. by a major studio. I don't, know, I don't know if there were any color 3D films before this, but I know this was the first time that something like this was attempted by a major studio. Mm -hmm. Which is interesting because... The, re the film that this is a remake of was also a notable step forward because it was uh, a two-color technicolor thing at a time when any color at all or any color techniques were still in their infancy. Yeah. To, I mean, some silent films you had uh, stained frames, but uh, actually having consistent color throughout was not, a, not an easy task. So it's kind of funny because, you know, these first two Wax Museum movies kind of, you know, pushed the mold a little bit. Uh, and then the third one had Paris Hilton. Really? <laughs> yeah, it was pushing the boundaries. Uh, and and that, is, that is all the comparisons we can make at this time between the three. No, but before I go into the synopsis, um, one thing, if you guys are interested, we mostly cater to just doing reviews right now and synopsises and trivia but if any point you would like us to try a little something different if there's something you want to know more about or you'd like to see us compare these three movies together let us know drop a comment and uh, we might take that into consideration but without further to do house of wax house of wax is the story of jared played by vincent price and he is a sculptor he makes beautiful wax statues for his little wax museum of historical figures. And he's very, very into it. A little too into it, perhaps. He likes to talk to them. Yeah, he likes to talk to them. He's, and he likes to talk to them when people are still around him, which, you know, is... If you do that, uh, don't. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> so, meeting people pro tip, don't talk to your statues. Unfortunately for him, despite the modest success that he's having... Uh, his partner in the venture is not happy with this, uh, and he would like to just burn everything down and collect his part of the insurance money. Well, obviously, since Vincent Price, Jared, is a little too attached to his wax statues, he's not having any of that. 
And in the resulting scuffle, the wax museum is burned down with Jared still inside it. So we later cut to where we meet, uh, I guess what I call the protagonist of our uh, film, uh, Sue Allen. She sees her friend brutally murdered by a um, deformed individual wearing a coat and a hat. She's all the more frightened when she goes to a new wax museum that has opened by our friend Jared, who is now uh, stuck to a wheelchair and his hands have been ruined by the fire. And would you know it, uh, the new Joan of Arc looks more than a little suspiciously like Kathy. Her friend who was horribly murdered. Yes. In a twist of events, Vincent Price's character, unable to make wax statues anymore because of his hands being ruined, has hired two lackeys, one of which we'll talk about a little bit more, is a uh, deaf and mute man played by Charles Bronson, of all people. Yeah. Um, have been committing murders, including of that partner who uh, did him wrong, and using them by dipping them in wax to make new statues, hence the new lifelike statues in his chamber of horrors. That is uh, something you sort of uh, see in the film is, I mean, he's very obviously a little off, maybe more than a little off because he's talking to his statues, but part of, you know, the reason his partner is upset about the wax business is because it's it's not bringing in enough people and Jared is he's not into all that horror nonsense you know he he wants to make historical figures and happy scenes he, yeah, well mostly happy scenes Joan uh, Joan of Arc is still you know on a pyre but but her she looks pretty cool with it on the statue yes he's 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 more concerned about the art and then post the fire, he has he's he's lost it and he's all he's down. He's down for a house of horrors. And it's funny because he's been killing people and then turning them into wax, but like different figures. His partner, he just he just turns his partner into a wax figure of himself. Well, you see, one of his gimmicks is that he well, supposedly would be going through the newspaper. And uh, he looks at the recent crime section and uh, creates uh, those grisly murders uh, in wax, which is easy for him since he's, you know, responsible for yeah. most of them. We later find out that, of course, I guess we've already let the cat out of the bag, Vincent Price is the murderer. Uh, he isn't wheelchair-ridden. However, he is horribly scarred. And in one of the coolest scenes of the film... Uh, he has captured Sue Allen because she is going to be his Mary, uh, Marie Antoinette. And uh, she is fighting him back and hits him in the face. And his wax mask breaks apart, revealing that he is the scarred man that she saw murder her friend. Yeah, and the 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 makeup of his face is not stellar, I would say. But... It's... It's just kind of different. It's, I'm not entirely sure what they were going for, other than, I guess, to showcase that he's a burn victim, but it actually kind of takes away from some of Vincent's yeah. charisma yeah. in some of those scenes, uh, but it's not terrible. In the 60s on back, when it came to makeup uh, and color or for, like, injury, deformity, purple and just purple 
was quite the popular choice for this person is horribly deformed or scarred. Grimace was very scary. Grimace was very scary back then. <laughs> and his his face has definitely got that purple all yes, over it. It's a little too purple. Uh, that being said, you know, we hope that you forgive it because Vincent Price had to endure about three hours of makeup routinely uh, to film this. And, you know, that's the fun thing about special effects makeup. Uh, it doesn't matter if it looks good or cr like crap. It still takes hours and hours to do. Now, it was funny because despite this being uh, my pick... Bones had actually seen this more times than I have, and what was interesting is I, when I first got in, I I don't like to research films ahead of time if I haven't watched them, because uh, I like to just go in blank and just enjoy the movie, at least for the first viewing. Um, I think I had caught maybe part of this on an episode of Svengoolie, but I've never just sat down and watched the whole thing. So I didn't know, it was at, know when I was going into it necessarily that uh, 3D was going to be such a big part of it. In fact, I didn't know it was a 3D movie. However, less than halfway through watching it and looking at the way the scenes were filmed, I'm like, oh, <laughs> this movie is a 3D movie uh, because there are some fairly gratuitous 3D scenes. I mean, it does in the opening credits say filmed in natural vision 3D. But then again, when I see opening credits, I just sort of... Uh, a fog rolls over. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's uh, it's reasonable that you might not have noticed that. Well, regardless of my oversight there, uh, there's no way after watching it you wouldn't know. Um, yeah. There are some scenes where they are really just having fun with it, maybe even too much fun. Um, one such scene, the first of the two, I think, biggest examples, is Vincent Price is opening up his new wax museum and he has hired a barker to drive people in and this barker is a guy with paddle balls and uh he likes to you know he's telling him about the horrible wax museum while doing all kinds of tricks with his paddle ball but at one point it feels like for i don't know how long it actually is but it feels like forever he's paddling the ball right at the screen and it it's literally if you've ever watched like a, a cartoon or a show where they were making fun of 3D, this is what they would have shown to make fun of the 3D. It's like, ah, look, it's coming right at you. You know, you know what? This is such a random aside. And this movie is even kind of, you know, old now. I mean, not super old. But uh, there was a movie called Monsters vs. Aliens that was also in 3D. And I think they literally did a paddle ball at the screen at part of it. Yeah, probably. Well, and it's funny because it cuts between things going on in the wax museum to him then there with the uh, paddle ball. Yeah, it's like there's some... Uh, maybe not super important information being given inside the wax museum, but it, it's still... There's just a major contrast between, all right, this is the serious movie... Now, here's a cool guy with paddle balls, and he's he's literally talking to the screen. He's like, you, with the popcorn, I'm going to hit it out of your hands. And he's <laughs> whacking it directly at the screen. However, that's nothing compared to another scene, which I think was the absolute silliest use of 3D I've ever seen. Um, so, Sue is with her, her love interest, 
and they're talking about all of the things that she's been through, but they're doing it at some sort of club and there are some can-can dancers and they are kicking their legs as high as they can right at the screen. Watching it, I was thinking, you know, can-can is perfectly, you know, all right to show in the 50s. You know, there's so much worse that, you know, you, you can't show. Can-can is fine. But the fact that it goes on and on and on. Well, and we do see uh, one of the girl's 3D keisters. Yeah, yes. She just spins around and show i mean it's it's of course covered it's all roughly it's all it's a a roughly bum but you know it's certainly a little little uh something it feels very racy for 1953 right i i just i don't know the fact that it was in 3d about killed me i thought that was hilarious (laughs) now for most of the film though outside of those scenes there are some places where there is 3d used But the movie, aside from those scenes, doesn't really use it gratuitously in other places. And I think a lot of this is because, interestingly enough, the hand-picked director from this film was a man named Andrzej Dutov. He was a Hungarian man, and most interestingly, uh, he was a Hungarian man with an eye patch. You see, he only had vision in one eye, which means that he cannot actually see 3D. Yes, uh... You need both eyes to see this kind of, well, I'm going to guess with most 3D, you need both eyes. Right. Um, in fact, I, he was asked not to wear his eye patch on the studio uh, in fear that the press would get in, that <laughs> they were making this 3D movie with a guy who couldn't see 3D, that they'd become a laughing stock. But regardless, he did a great job with it, I thought. So uh, another thing is, uh, I believe... Critics later said this, but it probably did the movie some good that he couldn't see 3D because I I think he was more concerned with just making a movie that was good rather than I I mean, he definitely was indulging in the gimmick, but the the movie for the most part is not just uh, a paddle ball coming at your face. No, and a lot of attention details put to a lot of like the scenes and the sets. So, not constantly having your eyes distracted by, ooh, what cool new 3D effect can we do here? Probably helped in the long run, especially since the most common way you're going to see this movie now is not in 3D, but in 2D. Yes. Now, I am not as versed in cinematography as my friend Bones here, but uh, Bones actually. Uh, knows a lot about filming techniques and uh he also knows a little about 3d can you tell us about it so real quickly before i even get into the 3d part of the reason this movie was filmed in 3d was because in the 50s the boogeyman to every film producer is television television everyone was scared television would completely dominate the entertainment industry and no one would bother to go out and see movies because you can just sit at home and watch tv so they they were starting to come up with different gimmicks and film processes to bring people in one thing was called cinerama which it's essentially a giant curved screen like imax and they had three different projectors going each one with more of the film i guess and so is you know you get to see the film on the really big screen well and 
prior to this film, there was a small film called The Buona Devil by Arch Obler, which you may not know that name, but it was significant uh, to me in Bones because Arch Obler has a name in that horror space of those early years of horror. And he had run for the longest time a uh, radio show called Lights Out. But what was interesting is that this little film that was just made a year prior to this one really took off and made a lot of money. People were into this 3D gimmick. So when it came time around for this movie, they're like, okay, we're going to make a big 3D movie and it's going to bring people in. Yes. And the 3D that was used on Buona Devil and then this movie, was it was the same style. Uh, it was Natural Vision 3D, which was created by Julian and Milton uh, Gunsberg and I believe I believe one or both of them were like screenwriters I, I looking up how this happened uh, how they made this work I was sort of surprised I was like ah I wouldn't expect these two to be the ones to come up with a 3D system but natural vision 3D was this very big rig and you have these two cameras slapped right next to each other one for the left eye one for the right eye now it's hard to get the cameras close enough to to work as two different eyes so they had mirrors that would essentially bring the image closer together so it really could be a left eye right eye then the rest of the camera is covered in what's called a blimp uh, it's like a giant hardcover case, and that's to mask the sound because these two cameras are very loud. And this rig is really big, so to move it, you need a crane or a forklift, which makes shooting certain scenes very difficult because, I mean, it's, it's pretty massive. The camera doesn't want to move too much. The camera doesn't want to move too much. Now, 3D at the time you pretty much had two very popular styles. There was anaglyph and polarized. Anaglyph is, all right, two cameras, but one has, uh, the film has a blue filter and the other has a cyan filter. And these are like your classic, you know, red, blue, 3D glasses. And the the filters will cancel out the, filter that's been put on the, the film but it's still it messes with the color it's not it's not the best which would have really been a downer for this film because this film was uh, a technicolor film uh and the color in this movie is absolutely beautiful um it looks just the way that only a technicolor film could look um the color wasn't done digitally or just recorded it had to be added but the, every color pops no this is like classic color film where all all of the colors are super overstated but natural vision 3d i believe was uh the polarized style so the left eye and the right eye are polarized at different uh rates then the left and right eye are are superimposed on top of each other to make uh, a whole new image now they the image is weird because there's two different polarizations going on. And that's where you get your glasses that are, they're essentially sunglasses, but, you know, each lens is slightly different than the other. 
Right. Well, and sunglasses are essentially polarized lenses. The idea is that the lens is going to allow in some wavelengths of light and exclude others. But in this case, each lens is doing a different, <laughs> is polarized differently. Yes. Um, and, you know, polarized to how the film is. And viewing it through the glasses, it causes the, the 3D effect. Now, since it was a polarized style, you re you had to have the silver screen. The Back in the day, there really used to be a silver screen that movies would play on. It is actually probably aluminum or some sort of cheap metal that you know was light. Even prior to 3D, they had those because, well, I'm going to assume they had those because the projectors, you know, were not working with the most powerful of light, so you needed something that was reflective and you know make the image brighter. Now you add sunglasses to the mix, and it's extra dark, so it has to be on that bright screen to help make it so people can see it. Well, and it was this was a big deal because this was the first time a studio had released a major studio had released a 3D color film, um, and it paid off for them. Um, despite the fact that the critics were, some of the critics at least were initially iffy with this one. Uh, New York Times didn't like it. Just going to show you that even back then, the New York Times didn't know what they were talking about. <laughs> but um, uh, critics uh, have since uh, definitely warmed up to it, but people at the time loved this movie. Um, it was filmed on a budget of about a million dollars and would go on to make somewhere uh, a little more than $23 million. Right. In fact, I want to say closer to 24 than 23 Yes. So it was, I mean, it was the kind of box office success that every movie, you know, if every movie theater could get that kind of return on their investment, or movie company, I should say. I'm a little curious with the critics. Um, oh, I mean, a lot of critics were not big fans when this movie first came out. And I almost wonder now if the reason critics look back at it and it's like, yeah, this is a good movie is... Maybe simply because of its historical significance. Not that this movie isn't good. I think this movie is totally worth or worthy of the praise. But uh, I think sometimes critics have a, a tendency to put on rose-colored glasses when it comes to historically significant films. Well, and in this case, I would say that if they're wearing rose-colored glasses... Uh it's only given them a correct view because uh, their natural cynicism to horror movies and things that people enjoy uh, has been corrected for. Mm -hmm. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. I think this is a good movie uh, and can recommend it without reservation. Yeah, this this movie, uh, you know, this is cult is king, but this movie's definitely past the, the cult film genre and definitely into this is a... a classic piece of horror cinema and uh this was a very important film uh not just for the studio but for vincent price um if you know vincent price and i imagine many of you do um if not you know what you would know him from is his dabbling in the horror genre uh he was a mainstay of it for the 50s the 60s and even some 70s pictures uh he was in the fly he was in house on haunted hill he was in Doc, the abominable Doctor Fives. Uh, uh, Doctor Goldfoot and his what was it bikini and the bikini machine. In the bikini machine and its sequel, uh, <laughs> Doctor Goldfoot and the Girl Bombs, uh, which I'm sure we'll cover those at some point. They're that's really a, the height of cinema. Really the height of cinema. But anyway, the point is, is that you that's what you think of Vincent Price as a horror actor. 
Prior to this film, that was not his reputation. His closest brushes with horror was he was in one of the Invisible Man movies. Yeah, the second one. And he wasn't really a monster in that film so much was he was a protagonist who, you know, the formula was driving him crazy, but he's very much the good guy. It's it's a it's a much happier version of the Invisible Man, I would say. Uh, he also, at the end of Abbott Costello uh, meet Frankenstein, um, his voice, I guess, in there was there as the Invisible Man. But prior to that, that was that was pretty much it. He'd played some villains and stuff before, but he was not a horror actor. Well, this movie completely revitalized his career. Suddenly, he was a big deal. And, I mean, it would go on to feed into him getting cast in all of those movies we just talked about. And unlike a lot of people who, you know, resent being typecasted, from what I can tell, Vincent leaned into it and made a career out of it. And honestly, I think he had a lot of fun on the way. I mean, watching all of his movies, it feels hard to watch and think that he wasn't having at least a little bit of fun. But he was definitely like a professional through and through. There's not... uh. <laughs> a low-budget horror movie he was a part of that he didn't just give 200%. Well, and I mean, that's the thing that really makes Vincent special. I mean, even when he's being campier, he's in a movie that's obviously silly. He's still hamming it up, or in some cases, actually, because the thing is, is, Vincent Price knew when to ham, but he also knew when to have, like, a serious, you know, uh, performance. But regardless, he's always giving it 110%, like... I don't know. I, I could be wrong. Maybe he's just that good an actor. But I was always under the impression whenever I'm watching a movie with Vincent Price that he is having more fun than anybody. Yeah, and he, he definitely took to, you know, the horror genre uh, and being ta- typecasted. Uh, I know, you know, Bela Lugosi. Bela Lugosi wanted to be uh, a lot of things apart from Dracula. And it it's kind of sad because, like, Bela Lugosi was legit funny and very talented but his dracula was too big dracula was too big and his accent was too hungarian and so he never got opportunities by the way if anybody ever tells you that the old dracula has a cheesy accent that's a very real accent and they don't know what they're talking about (laughs) he never ever lost that accent his entire life he always sounded like dracula And then, of course, he was actually not the only notable in this movie. This had a pretty good cast. Uh, We've talked about Sue Allen. She was played by Phyllis Kirk. And the place I knew Phyllis was from, uh, there is a musical that was made in the 50s called Two Weeks with Love that I had grown up watching. It was just one of the movies my family had. And uh, she plays uh, the rival love interest in that movie and does a good job of it. And then she would actually later go on to work with Detoth again, I think even later in this year, 1953, in a Western uh, called Thunder Over the Plains. What's interesting to note, too, is despite this being, you know, a studio horror flick, um, Detoth was actually most known, I think, for his Westerns. Uh, He filmed a lot of them. Uh, Apart from Sue Allen, uh, her roommate, Kathy, who dies, was played by uh, Carolyn Jones and and Duke, what was Carolyn Jones in? Well, you see, gentlemen, Carolyn Jones was the first goth GF as she played more. <laughs> <laughs> I just killed a little bit into something inside of bones, I think. But uh, she played Morticia on the Adams Family, uh, the original Adams Family. So 
that was kind of a big deal, but that's hardly the only movie she was in. She had a pretty, I mean, all the actors in here, for the most part, had dozens of movies that they were in. But some noteworthy ones that she was in were uh, films such as The Man Who Knew Too Much, The Seven Year Itch, and of special note to people who are interested in these type of movies, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I guess it kind of shows her acting range, because Kathy in this movie is this giggly, like, ditz. Yeah, no, she's a complete, like, goofy airhead, which... If you can, you know, contrast that now with Morticia Adams and, you know, her like serene, graceful, you know, understated personality. And until I, I saw I'm on the IMDb that she was Morticia, I would have never, ever put the two together. Right. No, I uh, until you told me that because I was doing some research there and so, somehow I missed it because I wasn't looking at TV. I'm like, oh, really? So that was interesting. And then, of course, the other noteworthy, most noteworthy, I should say, like I said, everybody in this movie was in something. Um, but obviously, Charles Bronson, this was an early role for him. It wasn't his first role by any means. He'd been in a handful. But it's weird seeing him so young is because as he'd get older, he would become a much bigger star, uh, especially with movies like Death Wish. And Well, I mean, Death Wish is like probably both of our favorite Charles Bronson movie, I, I, I'm assuming. But... Oh, actually, he's close, but uh, The Great Escape. Well, you see, that, that's the thing is uh, our my brain always goes Death Wish, but it's like probably more people think Magnificent Seven and Great Escape and all of these other super classics. But I do love me some Death Wish. Again, that was another case of uh, unless I had seen or hadn't seen the opening credits, I don't know if I would have really connected with me that he was... That well, that that was Charles Bronson on the screen because he he just looks like such a caveman. He does. He has that brow and he's big. And actually, it's funny because his character in this uh, movie is literally named Igor. And uh, what I'd like all of you guys at home to know is if you haven't seen it, the original Frankenstein movie or the Universal one, uh, there is no character named Igor, nor is there one in the book. But there is one in House of Wax. Yeah. Well, I'm you know son of frankenstein you know we we get the igor but even then that's not i want to say his character in son of frankenstein was a hunchback bella lugosi plays the igor in that one but he's actually like a evil genius as opposed to like the servile like timid Igor. i, I we think usually get. i think what it is is everyone just remembers young frankenstein well, <laughs> and that's probably young actually. frankenstein is just what people think well, there's of. no igor in that movie it's igor I, whatever <laughs> <laughs> but yeah charles bronson he definitely uh just young him and old him are so different looking well, and I will say this, too, for uh, Vincent Price in here. This movie revitalized his career, but he earned his money in this movie. Not only would he undergo three hours of makeup to be transformed into the uh, burn victim version of himself, but he had to do his own stunts in this movie, particularly the dangerous ones in the scene early on when the wax museum is on fire. For whatever reason, uh, between the rig or the set, there wasn't going to be an opportunity for a stunt actor and then to cut back to him. And because of that, he had to do his own stunts, which involves being on this set, which is on fire. Well, I think the thing about, you know, not being able to 
you know have a stunt double with especially with that house on fire scene is because they're they're burning down the wax museum there's all of these wax dummies this it's expensive to make wax dummies especially nice ones so you only get to burn them down once and so you can't afford to be setting up i'm setting up a shot takes a lot of time uh, and you, you just don't have that time when things are on fire. And to make matters worse, they set, I believe it was like three controlled fires that quickly became uncontrolled fires. Yes, this turned into a whole mess. I think I was, uh, a lot of the information I pulled on this came from a uh, article from uh, Turner Classic Movies. Their archives there. There's an article by uh, Lang Thompson and Jeff Stan uh, Starford, I believe. Uh, sorry if I've if you're from TCM and I've messed up your name. <laughs> I, I really do care. Uh, you guys made this really easy on me. But he was talking about how he had to water, run under the f- uh, flaming balcony and he was terrified. Well, I mean, I, I noticed in one part during this scene, he's fighting with his, you know, the manager who's burned the burning the place down, and the manager punches him, and uh, Vincent like hits a a uh, a railing but the railing doesn't break and then uh, the guy has to hit him again to get it to break and I, I i think it was probably supposed to break the first time and there's i mean there's tons of fire everywhere uh, and it's definitely very close to Vincent Price who's has to throw himself through this railing that won't break for him yeah i, I don't know how much he made but whatever it is he was worth it in this movie um because that was just wow and i have to say though despite the uncontrolled fire and all the difficulty the scene came off really good there was a scene where it had we all the wax dummies are in there and i mean they had to actually make wax museum dummies not quite wax museum qualities but they looked good but uh as the fire's raging you see their faces melting off and it's it's actually kind of a creepy scene it's a very striking scene it's it's gruesome um i mean what it reminded uh, the both of us of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, the face melting scene in that, and that wasn't wax. That was, uh, I believe, uh, a fast melting gelatin. And those were supposed to be real people, and this was just supposed to be dummies. But it, wow, it, it felt like a, a a precursor, almost like this was them discovering the face melting effect. <laughs> Um, uh, and I'm sure to Jared, you know, to Vincent Price's character, they were real people. Man, I mean, it, it is creepy because although they they look like people in an uncanny valley way rather than a uh, a really, you know, nice wax museum style. But, I mean, it's still, you know, people's faces melting off and their, their eyes are bulging and also on fire. It's, you know... If if you added red wax to it, it would be quite graphic. <laughs> it certainly would. No, um, I really I really liked this movie. This one's an easy recommend for me. Just a classic. Yeah. No. This is this is definitely a a, a recommend. If if you are interested in the history of movies, if you're interested in Vincent Price. Or if you just want to have fun and watch something that's fun to watch, this fits the bill. Yes, this this fits the, the fun category. Well, and I mean, there's a lot of things that, you know, we like cult movies. One thing I like to say a lot is the only thing better than a good film is a very bad one. 
But uh, for this one, there's a lot of stuff here that you don't have to worry about or overlook. It's incredibly well acted. It's directed competently. The sound is good. I didn't realize what a big deal it was sound in movies until I started watching some of these older films where it was horribly mangled. Yeah. So, <laughs> when no, you is... watch Robot Monster and the the music and everything is just uh, auditory torture. Right. Well, and this is also just a fun film because there's like a mystery element to it. There's a horror element to it. But, and there's also a little comedy thrown in. Not too much to hurt the film or ruin the tone, but enough to keep it light and fun. It, it, it's very much an easy watch. Well, I I don't think I have much else to say about this. Um, do, do you have anything else on your mind? Not that I can think of. I think we've pretty much gone through everything. Well, I guess that should uh, lead in now uh, to what we're watching next week. And if I... Remember right, that's your pick, Bones. What do you got? Well, yes, you're darn right. It's my pick. Uh, we're uh, we're going back, back to the '80s. We're we're going to be talking about killer clowns from outer space. Oh, now that's a classy picture. Yeah, it's there's a a video game that is, God willing, will come out this year, um, and so it's been on my mind. Well, and I have to warn you, uh, Bones is the editor, so if this game is good, uh, if videos start to take longer to come out, uh, that's why. Yeah, yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> um, but yeah, and uh, thank you to all listening. We are now on three different platforms, uh, YouTube, of course, uh, CastBox, and Odyssey. We've actually been on Odyssey for a little while now. I just... Uh, I mean, neither of us have decided to plug it, but we're plugging it now. We are. So if you are our one listener who prefers Odyssey, you are appreciated. We love you. <laughs> you are loved. <laughs> you are loved and treasured. But uh, yeah, thank you for listening. Right. And if you'd like to keep listening, don't be afraid to hit the subscribe button. But I mean, we are putting these out almost every week. So if you want to stay caught up and not miss them, that's the easiest way. So with all that said... Good night. Look forward to seeing you next week. And goodbye.